Well, it is great to see you guys this morning. I know that uh, we missed some of you guys for Thanksgiving weekend last week, but if you missed it, you can obviously tell that last week we entered into the Advent season. Uh, and as we did that, together with about 45 other churches here in South Florida, we entered into a new study and we are calling it Unsinkable, where together with all of these other churches, we're talking about how do we build lives on things that don't sink. Lives that can take the storms, that are battered and hit by the storms, that the storms come and they go, and nevertheless, at the end of the storms, notwithstanding all of the wind and all of the rain and all of the whatever that comes at us, we're still standing in the end. What kind of a life is that? How do we build a life like that? And so last week, together with all of these other churches, we talked about the first ingredient of an unsinkable life, and we said that that ingredient is truth. We talked last week about the fact that truth matters. That was like the first big thing I said, and it matters why. Because whatever it is that you believe to be true is what you build your life upon, consciously and unconsciously, willingly and unwillingly. Like whatever it is that you believe to be true is what establishes the values for your life. It establishes the purpose of your life. It establishes whether or not in your mind there's any meaning to your life. It's the difference between joy and sorrow and hope and hopelessness and I am satisfied and content with what I have in life and I will never be satisfied or content with what I have in life. And when life comes to an end and our insurance can't forestall that forever and our money can't forestall that forever and our doctors can't forestall that forever and our connections and influence can't forestall that forever. In the end, it's either what you have or don't have to hang on to. It's kind of a big deal, truth. So truth matters. That was the first truth about truth. But then the second truth about truth that we talked about is this idea that truth, by definition, is something that must come from outside of us. In other words, I can't create my own truth for me, and you can't create your own truth for you. And if you just think about it logically for a moment, that that necessarily has to be the case, doesn't it? I mean, 2,400 years ago, Socrates, one of the most brilliant men who ever lived, told us as much when he came to us and said, look, I only know that I know nothing. So he's saying, I know one thing, and this is it. It's that I know nothing. Why does he say that? Because he realizes something that's reasonably and logically inescapable, which is unless you know absolutely everything about absolutely everything, then you cannot, at least with absolute certainty, know absolutely anything. Why? Because there's always this possibility that there's some bit of information out there somewhere that if you knew about it, would change what you believe to be true, even about the things you're most sure of. Unless you know everything, then you cannot know anything which is one of the many things that makes Jesus and the word of Jesus that we call the Bible so incredibly valuable. Why? Because Jesus comes and he presents to us as the one who knows everything. He's like, hey, I am the only one who knows everything, supernaturally conceived and entered into this world at Christmas to come to do what? Because he told us last week, I have come to testify to the truth. There it is. It's like, hey, you want to know what's happening? You want to know what the truth is? Let me tell you with absolute certainty, here's what it is. It's remarkable. And so unsinkable lives, first of all, are founded upon the truth. But then secondly, as we'll talk about today, they're founded upon God. And so then the question, like if you're following along with me, that's raised by what we've talked about thus far is this. Okay, well, if they're founded upon God, then what is the truth? have to say about God, and it says so much about God that I can't even begin to get into, but if I can just gather up a lot of it and summarize it for you and put it in a statement, it says this, that God is not a concept, God is a reality, and there's a difference. 
And the difference looks in our lives something like this. Like if God is just a concept to me, all right, well then here's the deal. I might be willing to accept God into my life, but I'm going to accept him into my life on my terms. So in other words, God, I accept you into my life so long as... So long as you're willing to fit into the existing pattern of my life, so long as you're willing to fit into the existing plans and purposes that I've established for my life, my goals, my mission, my passions, my addictions. Like if you're willing to fit into the little boxes that I establish for you in my life, then come on. But if not, not so much. So it looks like that. And also, I think that if God is a concept for us as opposed to a reality, like I'm, I'm actually dealing with the real God, like the reality of who he is and what he's really like, okay, then, then God, whether I process it this way or not, I treat God, I relate to God as if he's more or less my personal assistant. God, I accept you into my life, but I'm accepting you into my life, really, I mean, just to be honest, for what you can do for me, and I'm super excited that you showed up for work again today, you know? <laughs> And you brought, you wore your steel-toed boots. This is fantastic. What? You forgot your gloves? You know, I'm docking your pay. I mean, that's exaggerating. But when you look at it and you step back at how you relate to God, there's a little of that there, isn't it? God, help me run my business because that's really why you're here. God, help me save my marriage because, honestly, that's what I'm most interested in. God, fix my kids because heaven knows I've tried. And... Punch in your time card. Get to work on my assignments. All right, here's the deal. That's when God's a concept. When God is a reality, all of that disintegrates. It dissolves. It disappears. It is crushed under the weight of his glory, ground to dust, and blows away. There's none of that left. And I think better than anybody, Isaiah the prophet illustrates this. And he illustrates it. In Isaiah chapter 6. But I say this because even though Isaiah clearly believed in God, even though, you know, Isaiah clearly studied the Word of God, he clearly prayed. He's coming to the temple when this vision occurs to worship God. So obviously he's a worshiper of God. He's a servant of God. He's a holy man. Raise your hand if you've written a book of the Bible. Okay, yeah, me neither, all right? So, like, he's a remarkable guy. We can agree on all of these things. There still, it seems, is this sense in which God is, in some degree, a concept to him. He's somebody that Isaiah's hoping will sort of jump into the existing pattern of his life and that of his nation. In other words, there are things that he hopes God shows up for work so that God can then do. And we know that because his whole life is reoriented when he actually has to deal with the reality of God. It's a remarkable transformation, even for an already pretty remarkably deep and spiritual and holy guy. And what's very cool about, I think, this vision is that he describes this encounter with God with such clarity and with such definition. He tells you what he smells, if you will, smoke. He tells you what he feels, everything trembles. He tells you what he tastes, a coal. He tells you what he hears, the worship of heaven. He tells you what he sees, the king. Why is he doing all that? Because he wants you to have this experience. Isaiah the prophet says this 
Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1, he says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, which is not just a statement about when this happened. He's not saying, hey, you know, remember that year that Uzziah died? That's when I had the vision. Guys, it's a statement about his heart. It's a statement about his mind. It's a statement about his life. It's a statement about the life of his nation. Like everything is up for grabs right now because the king is dead. And Uzziah had been king for 52 years. He was the only king most of the people in this country, including Isaiah, had ever known. And for the most part, he was a good king. He's arguably the greatest king since Solomon, at least up to his day. There was peace under this man's reign. There was prosperity. The economy was great under this man's reign. He strengthened the borders of Israel. He expanded the borders of Israel. He was a great military king. And right around the time of his death, the Assyrian Empire to the northeast, which was a brutal, massive, cruel, wicked, unbelievably powerful, huge empire, was growing in strength and starting to come their way. So it was sort of like one of these deals in the history of his nation, and for that matter, of his own life, in which he's going, man, if ever we needed the king, it's now, and he's gone. Oh, and by the way, the king was his uncle. He's part of the royal family, this prophet. And I don't know because I've never experienced this, but I I would assume that it's pretty cool if your uncle is the king. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, wow, your uncle's the king, you know. You don't have to make a reservation at the restaurant. It's like just you're in. What table do you want? I'm sorry, sir, we're going to have to ask you to move, you know. Like, it's amazing. So how does this affect him? How does this work for him? He says that in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the real king. And here's the deal. Up until that point, I thought I knew what a king looked like. He was my uncle. I got to spend time in his presence all the time. I thought I knew what a throne room looked like. And it was, you know, pretty magnificent. It was, it was awesome. I thought I knew what a high and lifted up throne looked like. And I was impressed until now. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And you say, well, then what did he look like? Well, actually, we don't know because Isaiah doesn't describe him. He just tells us about his robe. He says, and the train of his robe filled the temple, which is disappointing to us because I, you know, I would assume that if I saw God, I would walk out of there going, and his face looked like this, and his hands looked like this, and he's about yay tall and about yay big. And I mean, they're like, there's leaves so much on the table where we're going, come on, tell us about his eyes or something. But to an ancient Near Eastern person, this makes perfect sense because they all understood that the robes which is the only thing he describes of an ancient Near Eastern king, spoke of the majesty of that king. And for that matter, spoke of the power and the dominion of that king. Why? Because when one ancient Near Eastern king conquered another ancient Near Eastern king, you know what he did? He cut off a piece of his robe and appended it to his own. Stitched it on. More kings, more robe. More kings, more robe. More kings, more robe. Isaiah steps into the throne room of God, into his temple in heaven, and there is nowhere in the temple that the robe isn't. He's the king of kings. His dominion extends over all of heaven and over all of earth. And he wants you to see that. 
He says that above him stood the seraphim. Well, what are they? Well, there are angels, and they're burning angels. It means literally burning ones. And the, and the fact that they're on fire in some sense speaks of the holiness of this king into whose presence they served. And so does their conduct. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, unwilling to look upon the blazing glory of this great God and king. With two, he covered his feet, his lower parts, really, the symbol of his creatureliness, unwilling to expose that in the presence of this king. With two, he flew, ever ready to carry out the commands of this king. And notice what they say, because one called to another, and the idea is that they're doing this continuously. It doesn't stop. You find them doing it here in Isaiah, and then 800 years later, you find them doing it in Revelation. It's the same cry. And they cry it from one side of the throne room to the other. One over here, one over here. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as soon as they get done, this guy says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then when that happens again, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory in unending, unceasing, never diminishing, ever increasing praise for God is infinite. So like every time they say it, the next time they get to say it, they're more excited about it than the last. Like their joy just increases for forever at the holiness of God. What is holiness? It means separateness. It means distinctness. It speaks of the uniqueness of God. God says in his word in several places, he says, to whom will you compare me? Or to whom will you liken me? It's like he's saying, go ahead, describe me and give three examples. You know, I mean, like, give it a shot. You know, like, well, God, you're sort of like, no, that doesn't work. All right, well, then I think that God, you're, that doesn't really work either. All right, well, what about, no, that doesn't work. What is he saying? He's inviting you into an understanding of his holiness, and he's going, guys, there's no one and nothing like me, period. I am the great I am. And there is no other. Holiness, too, I think, speaks of beauty. You know, the Bible talks about worshiping God and the beauty of holiness. Think about the beauty of the Lord and think about the utility of beauty. Like, what what do you do with beauty? What, What can you do with it? It really doesn't have any utility. Like, beauty doesn't come alongside you and run your business and help you do that. You know, it doesn't come alongside and go... Beauty is going to save your marriage, and beauty is going to, you know, fix your children, and beauty is going to heal your body, and beauty is going to, they're like, there's no utility. And yet, if I stood up here and I went, well, what use is beauty? You'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't know if you saw the sunrise this morning, but I saw it on the way in, and it was beautiful. There's a man in this congregation who every Sunday goes, and he takes pictures, and then he sends them to me. But I hadn't gotten one in a while, so I texted him. I'm like, is it weird that every time I see a sunrise, I think of you? How are you doing? <laughs> and he sent me three pictures. He goes, I'm there now. Picture, picture, picture. Takes your breath away. Stirs your soul. God is so beautiful. These guys can't stop praising him. And every time they get to do it, they're more enthusiastic than the last. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Ah, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then we're told that the foundations of the thresholds of the throne room of God shook at the voice of him who called. 
and the house was filled with smoke, which everywhere in the Bible is evidence of God's presence. And then notice what happens. Because what happens next always happens 100 times out of 100 times when you enter into the presence of God, when he no longer is a concept, but you deal with the reality of who he is. Isaiah says, woe is me. He's a prophet, guys. He proclaims the oracles of God. Do you know what an oracle of woe is? It's a curse. He proclaims a prophetic curse upon himself. He sees God and he says, woe is me, for I'm lost. Well, why are you lost? For I'm a man of unclean lips. You're like, well, get a napkin. No, that's not what that means. Everywhere in the Bible, the mouth is connected to the heart. In other words, what's happening in here is what directs what comes out of here. When frustration is coming out of here, it's because it's in here. When selfishness comes out of here, it's because it's in here. When racism comes out of here, it's because it's in here. You get the idea? When I'm greedy out here, I'm greedy in here. That's the whole, this is the problem. This is what he's confessing. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And here is what has finally revealed the fullness of this to me. My eyes have seen the king, okay, the Lord of hosts. Which I think means that the first way that you know that you've moved from God being a concept to a reality, to use the biblical old-fashioned language, is you realize, uh uh-oh, I'm a sinner. In other words, when you see the holy, holy, holy God, no matter how favorably you compare to everybody else, and no matter what your mom thinks of you, what you realize is, I'm unholy, I'm unholy, I'm unholy. I am equal parts the opposite of everything he is. And there's just no escaping it. And there's no excusing it. There's no running from it. It just is what it is. It is humbling to be in the presence of greatness. And a lot of us have experienced this in life. Like maybe you were, you know, sort of the brain in high school. I mean, you did great in school. You were valedictorian. Let's make you. Okay. You got into Harvard. Well, good. That's awesome, and that's, that's like quite the accomplishment. It's amazingly impressive. And then you got to Harvard, and you realized that intellectually you're actually quite pedestrian. Why? Because you got around really smart people. You weren't the big fish in the small pond. It happens, you know, athletically. You know, you're a great football player. You're the best on the team. You get a D1 scholarship and you go to Florida State or UF or Georgia or wherever, you know, and you see the four and five star guys show up and you go, oh, <laughs> that's what a great athlete looks like. You're, you're a great vocalist and everybody your whole life said you should sing on Broadway, you know, and then you went to Broadway and then you came home. Because <laughs> those people are really great. It's humbling to be in the presence of greatness. How humbling must it be to enter into the presence of ultimate greatness, of greatness defined, of infinite greatness? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't treat him flippantly. You don't enlist him on your team. You don't try to put that in a box. There's no box that contains him. And I think it's remarkable what the Lord does because Isaiah's like, that's it, cursed am I, I'm ruined, I'm lost, I'm wrecked. Luther translated it, I am dissolved. I'm just disintegrating. 
It's over. I love the way the Lord responds to this. Because here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, finally, you get it, you know? Like, you are right, welcome into my presence, and this was the point. In fact, you know what? I think it'd be good for you to sit in this for a little while. I've got like a seating room out there. My personal assistant is going to get you something to drink, and I'm going to let you just, I'm going to take some phone calls, and then I'll get back with you. He doesn't run to Isaiah. He flies. It's absolutely immediate. Oh, God, I'm ruined. Let me fix that for you, because only I can do that. It says, then one of the seraphim, one of these burning ones, flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar of sacrifice. The idea is that this is the image of, of the temple. The blood of the innocent lambs are spilled and, and sacrificed on this altar. It's a bloody coal with innocent blood. The innocent dies for the guilty. That's the gospel. And he touched my mouth, which represents my heart, with it. And then he proclaimed me forgiven. He said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then having been forgiven, what happens next? He hears the voice of the Lord. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I, Isaiah said, hey, put me down as a definite maybe. Because I might consider it. Seriously, like I'm kind of going, I don't know, maybe I'll do this for you. But I just need to know if it's going to fit into my existing patterns of life. Like, So what's involved exactly? How long is it going to take? Where am I going to have to go? What are the risks? Is there hazard pay? Is hazard pay necessary? 401k, does it come with dental? Like, how long is it going to take? And then when I get back, I can put you back to work for me, right? Everything gets recategorized, doesn't it? It's all reoriented. Isaiah's like, hey, Lord, I don't even know if you would consider me. I'm, I'm kind of a newbie in the room here. Um, I, I don't know if I have what it takes. I don't know what it involves. And honestly, I don't care. Even if it costs me my life, so what? I've seen your glory. That's nothing compared to your glory. Oh, incidentally, you're God, so you give it back in the end anyway. So, like, what then have I lost? I'm, I'm sure you got a lot of other people on your list. But if it's okay with you, I, I really want to do this. Like, would you give me a chance? Here I am. Like, I'm here anyway. Send me. Which I think means that the second way that you know you've moved from God being a concept to a reality is, is that instead of trying to get him to orient around you, you reorient your life around him. It's like when you see him, or even the works of his hands, evidence of his majesty, evidence of his power, evidence of his brilliance, evidence of his wisdom, Evidence of his grace, he runs. He flies, not runs. How could it be otherwise? I've shown some of these pictures over the years, but I want to do it again. Back in 1977, the United States sent out a, sent out a spacecraft um, 
called the Voyager. And the, the mission of the Voyager was to go out into our solar system and then to photograph the various planets of our solar system. And here's the deal. Over the course of 13 years, it did it. But in 1990, when it made it all the way to the outer reaches of our solar system, NASA said, wait, you know, and I'm pretty sure that was the actual language. Wait, stop, you know, time out. Don't, don't, don't go any further. Before you leave the solar system, turn around and take a picture of the solar system from the outer reaches of the solar system. It actually took 60 images at 640,000 pixels each that got put all together. And the picture looks like this. You can actually see it on either side. But I don't know if you can see this. But right there is you. That's Earth from the outer reaches of the solar system. Carl Sagan referred to that as the pale blue dot. It's the name of the picture. You can look it up later. But on that little dot is where everything and everyone you've ever experienced, heard of, or ever will, at least in this life, has lived out the whole of their existence, all of human existence, right there. You are a speck on a tiny little speck from the outer reaches of our solar system, which, by the way, is actually just a speck in the Milky Way galaxy, which is the galaxy that we reside in. We're a speck and a speck. Do you know that um, the size of our whole solar system relative to the size of the Milky Way galaxy, which is just an average-sized galaxy, is like comparing the size of a quarter with the entire landmass of North America. Now, that freaks me out because I regularly lose quarters in my truck, and they're just gone. <laughs> in between the seats, quarters, french fries, children, whatever, they're just gone. I don't even look. I'm just like, ah, you got an extra quarter. I'm like, done. But our galaxy is just one of hundreds of millions of galaxies. So as you head out into the universe, you see other galaxies like this next one. This is called the Bard Spiral Galaxy NGC 1300. Why? Because there are hundreds of millions of them. Like, what you, it's not like hurricane season, you know, you get 13 named storms. We'll go with Irma. You know, like at some point you just punt and go with numbers. But that's out there. I love the next one. It's the Majestic Sombrero Galaxy. That is so beautiful. Pixar did not create this. That's a picture of a real galaxy. That one, they said, we can't give that a number. We've got to give that a name. The next one is called a rose made of galaxies. It's remarkable. And then the tail over here, you can see another galaxy. Beautiful. But my favorite one is the Whirlpool Galaxy. That's this, and it has a galaxy in its tail as well. And again, I've shared this before, but the reason that this is my favorite is really not because I think it's the most beautiful. I kind of favor the, the majestic sombrero. I just, I don't know, I think that's awesome. And this is awesome, so Lord, don't be offended. But, but they were able to zoom into the core of this galaxy, the center, and take a picture and it looks like that. Can you see it? I'll get out of the way. 
So they call that the X core of the Whirlpool galaxy. And, you know, look, I'm a pastor and a Christian, so maybe I just see crosses everywhere. But I, I think that looks like a cross to me. So it raises some questions, right? Like, why is the universe so big? Because right now, I mean, if you're following along, you are a tiny little speck on a planet that is a tiny little speck in a solar system that is a tiny little speck in a galaxy that is a tiny little speck in the universe. Why is it so big? Because here's what I can only do. Like, all I can come up with are theories. All you can come up with are theories. Why? Because we don't know everything about everything, do we? So I theorize this, and maybe you theorize that, and maybe you theorize this, and this other person theorizes that, and we can all talk about which one of us has it right, and which one of our arguments is stronger. None of them are sure. None of them are certain. Because there's just so much we don't know. Or we can go to the truth the one who alone was there, the maker of them all, the seated-on-the-throne person. And in which case he tells us the answer is that it's, it's so big because it has to be to fulfill its purpose. So then what's its purpose? David says this in Psalm 19, verse 1. He says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So here's why we looked at this passage of Scripture, this vision of God, and for that matter, His handiwork. It's really so that I can ask you two questions. So question number one, is the person in the vision that Isaiah gives to us, and for that matter, who also created all of this handiwork, is that someone that you could reasonably expect to fit into a box you create for him? And for that matter... Is it someone that you could reasonably expect to come alongside you, you know, as your personal assistant? Did you bring your gloves today, Lord? Because it's going to get dirty. I've got a dirty assignment for you this time. You got the steel-toed boots on, and OSHA requires that, and so that's a big deal for me. I mean, it just dissolves, doesn't it? It's like you're going, yes, that's what I do, and yes, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. The first way you know that you've moved from God being a concept to a reality, to dealing with who he really is, is you go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I'm a good guy down here, but that's not the comparison to make. When I see the holy, holy, holy God, I am unholy, 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 and I confess it. And he doesn't send you to the waiting room. He flies to your aid with the blood of the one who is the Lamb of God that all these lambs pointed toward, who takes away the sin of the world, the infinitely worthy life, laid down to cover the guilt of the guilty who claim it on their behalf. And the second way is that you you reorient your life around God. You stop saying, hey, Lord, can you do this for me? And can you fix this for me? And can you do this for me? And hey, you know what? I really don't want to hear what you have to say about this or this or this or this. So stay in this box that I've got for you. And I'll be happy with you because I'm actually God. And I mean, you know, you don't think about it that way, but that's ultimately the way you relate. Instead, you're like, hey, Lord, what can I do? I mean, I know there are a lot more talented people out there. But I want to do something. 
So I'm here. Send me on your mission. Doesn't matter what it is. I'm in. Just, just send me. So as we enter into our time of reflection, I'm going to just ask you, like, is God a concept for you or is God a reality? And let me break it down along those same lines. Have you realized that you're a sinner, that God is holy, 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 and in comparison with him, which is the comparison to make, that's a problem. (laughs) Lord, you're big, (sighs) and I'm a speck on a speck on a speck in a speck, which makes you feel kind of insignificant, doesn't it? It's actually not the point. It's fascinating if you think about it. God has placed each one of us in a world in which that which is few, in which that which is small, in which that which is rare is at the same time that which is most valuable. Isn't that right? It's gold, not dirt, that's precious. It's diamonds, not stones, that matter. It's people, not galaxies, that are important to the Lord. And I think you can say, look, I'm more important than any galaxy out there, which sounds like it's, you know, it's pretty puffed up, doesn't it? Why is that not the case, however? God never became a galaxy, but he became a person, and he became a person for you to come and to rescue you. Maybe you didn't even know you needed to be rescued until you saw him, but that's what he did for you. So if you realize that you're a sinner, confessed that and said, fly to me, <laughs> rescue me, and are you willing to reorient your life around God or are you going to settle for trying to get him to orient his life around you because that isn't going to work? And again, it's a, I want to, I get to. Wow, how can I? Not a, I have to. It's I've seen you, and I want to be a part of what you're doing. So if you guys would stand for prayer. Uh, If you want to pray with somebody, by the way, like just have someone pray over you. We've got people who who are part of our prayer team, and they'll be on the side of the room and in the back. And uh, So take advantage of that week by week. You can do it after the service, too, if that's uh, easier for you. Um, But I'm going to just lead us through a prayer, and, and I'll give you some space in the prayer to sort of interact with the Lord directly on your own, your words, not mine. But let's, let's do that. Father, we are humbled by your greatness, by the reality of who you actually are. Lord, you are the king. You sit high and lifted up. The train of your robe speaks of your dominion over everything and everyone and the whole of this universe, wittingly and unwittingly, knowingly and unknowingly, irrespective of the acts, ultimately revolve around you and fulfill your will. God, humble us in the presence of true greatness. Reveal to us who we really are that we might confess it. I want to just give you a minute. You know, tell God who you really are. Not relative to people you know and, you know, you're a good person in society. That's not what I'm talking about. Relative to Him. Talk to Him about that.